Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. 2024 is going to be a year of a rare type of planetary alignment. The world's biggest democracy, which has parliamentary elections every five years, will go to the polls within months of the world's second biggest democracy, which has a presidential vote every four years. (laughs) Get it? India and the United States are going to join three other of the world's six biggest democracies, Indonesia, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, in what will be the year that the greatest number of people in history vote. That's the easy bit to predict about 2024. We're going to have a lot of elections. But what happens in them? How will the next U.S. president impact the world? What happens to competition between the United States and China? And what happens in the wars in Ukraine and Gaza? Those are the much harder questions to contend with. Well, last week, I looked back at 2023 with Stephen Walt, FP's columnist and resident scholar of realism. This week, it's time to cast ahead. We had a few small audio issues on this one, so thank you for bearing with us both on that and also the fact that we recorded this a few weeks ago as we prepared for the holidays. Let's dive in. Stephen, welcome back. Hi, nice to be with you again. You nervous about this one? Always. <laughs> so let me begin with the same question I asked you at this point last year, which is, what is the most underweighted risk for 2024? What should we be worried about that we aren't already? The first point I'd make about you know forecasting in general and 2023, the year we just got through, is a beautiful illustration of that is how we have to approach this with a certain amount of humility. Uh, you know, nobody had a war in Gaza uh, on their bingo card a year ago. Um, so uh, we all approach this again, recognizing that we might be, uh, might be wrong. I think the things that I'm most worried about that I think are still being underweighted, um, it's not like they haven't been thought about at all, but what I think is underweighted is the possibility of two things. One is the possibility of a really significant escalation uh, in the Middle East conflict. Uh, The good news, if there is any good news uh, in the war between Israel and Hamas, is that so far none of the bystanders or third parties in the region have seemed very enthusiastic about getting involved. Uh, There's been a little bit of conflict between Hezbollah and Israel. The Houthis have fired some rockets and things like that. Uh, But in general, everyone seems to want to keep this limited and confined. If the conflict continues, and there are some concerns that this may go on for months, the ability or the willingness of everyone to stay on the sidelines, or most of the regional powers to stay on the sidelines, may deteriorate. And if you start thinking about what that would mean, 
then if you get a serious war happening between Israel and Hezbollah, if that forces Iran to then get more actively involved, which of course then drags the United States in on Israel's side, you suddenly have a regional conflict of the sort we haven't really seen in decades, if ever. So I think people recognize that that's a problem. It's not like it hasn't been imagined. I think the Biden administration has worked very hard to keep the lid on this uh, regionally, but that may not succeed. Um, so if you ask me, you know, what could really transform uh, what's going on there uh, in a very bad way, that's the one I worry the most about. Mm. Indeed, and it's worth worrying about it. This is also a point where I want to remind our viewers that we're taping this uh, in early December. And so by the time you listen to this, there's a chance that some of these things, some of the circumstances may change. But of course, this is our our viewpoint at this moment in time. Um, well, Stephen, since you've started off with the Middle East, um, let's stay there for a bit. And I guess what I want to ask you is, how do you see things playing out between Israel and Hamas, between the Israelis and the Palestinians over the next few months? What do you think things might look like one year from now? Uh, unfortunately, I think things are not going to look that different uh, a year from now. I think by then the active violence uh, will be over. Uh, there will be some kind of uh, ceasefire or an end to the Israeli campaign in Gaza. Gaza, of course, will have been largely destroyed and there'll be a massive humanitarian uh, burden. Uh, it's quite clear that uh, that even if there are some Israelis who might want to drive Gazans into Egypt or whatever, Egypt doesn't want to accept them. So this is going to be a humanitarian crisis of enormous proportions, and that's not going um, to end within a, a year or so. Um, but the fundamental problem, the political problem of how Israelis and Palestinians will coexist in this geographic space will not have been resolved a year from now. Um, so in a sense, we will have kicked the can down the road. I don't uh, think you'll see a shift in the Israeli government to suddenly say now we're in favor of genuinely pursuing a two-state solution. I don't think you're going to see an emerged, reformed, and newly empowered Palestinian authority. Um, I don't think you're going to see Hamas eliminated as well. You may even see Hamas more popular both in Gaza than it was before, and even more popular on the West Bank than it was before as a symbol of Palestinian resistance. So the depressing news here is uh, a year from now when we have this conversation, um, that issue will be just as intractable and unresolved as it is today. What about, you know, one of the things in before October 7 that seemed to be defining uh, and reshaping the Middle East was this spate of normalization agreements with Israel. Um, and the latest of them that was, uh, you know, in the midst of talks was Saudi Arabia. And what is your sense of, A, how the, the countries that Israel did normalize ties with, um, how that's going to play out in the next few months? And what happens to the Saudi potential deal? I think that certainly, you know, the fighting has put that on hold uh, for the moment. But I don't think it has eliminated it as a possibility over the longer term, because the incentives the different actors had for the deal uh, haven't gone away. In the American case, I think the primary incentive was actually not related to the Israeli-Arab conflict. It was much more about Saudi Arabia's relationship with China. 
and that we were trying to broker some kind of security arrangement with Saudi Arabia to keep them on our side in a period where Saudi Arabia was at least flirting to some degree with China. And then the way to get that through the American political system was to link it to normalization with Israel. Mm. There were lots of details that had to be worked out. There were some concerns about whether or not it would have a nuclear energy component that made some people uh, nervous as well. But that incentive to continue to keep um, Saudi Arabia within the American security orbit and not have it realigned with China, I think that hasn't gone away. And there have been some statements by Brett McGurk and others suggesting that, you know, when the dust has settled in Gaza, they want to return to that. Of course, the Saudis want to get the best deal they possibly can, would love to get a security guarantee from the United States. And the Israelis would love to have the symbolic achievement of a normalization agreement with Saudi Arabia. So I imagine that possibility coming back. The question is how quickly it comes back. And that may depend a lot on how the conflict uh, goes and how it plays out with Arab populations. You know, one thing there, um, Stephen, is that um, there's a real sort of difference between how Arab world leaders look at the Palestinian cause and how their people uh, support the Palestinian cause. So in Saudi Arabia, for example, we know polling suggests that, you know, regular citizens um, are in disagreement with their with MBS uh, on this particular issue. Uh, of course, he's a dictator, he doesn't need to worry about it. But but those differences do seem to be uh, more public, in part because of October 7 and the events that have followed. But just zooming out a little bit from there, I mean, across the wider Arab world, what is your sense of how anger over Gaza and what's happening there with the rising death toll, how do you think that might continue to play out in terms of opinions shifting across the Middle East, across the world? How does that change dynamics in the Middle East and also for Israel and the United States? Well, th this is in a sense an old story in, in some respects that uh, Arab opinion has always been uh, you know, I guess more confrontational, certainly less sympathetic uh, to Israel than the attitudes or policies of many of the governments, you know, most notably uh, in Egypt, which eventually cut a peace deal uh, with Israel, often described as something of a cold peace. But the Israeli government and the Egyptian government have basically been jointly maintaining the, uh, the lid on Gaza for years now. Um, that's very much at odds with the opinions of many uh, Egyptian citizens, but the government is, you know, in, in charge. And that's true, not just in Saudi Arabia. It's also true in a number of the Gulf states as well, probably uh, uh, most visibly in Jordan. What this does, of course, is highlights a deep tension or deep contradiction for the United States, where on the one hand, we say we're in favor of democracy. We think the people ought to govern. But we recognize that when it turns to the Middle East, if the people were actually in charge and shaping policy or even had a louder voice over what those policies would be, the positions of many of those governments would be quite different. So, Stephen, uh one of the frameworks through which to look at 2024 is just as this year where um, a large part of the world is going to go and head to the polls. And you know, this is the, the subject of uh, FP's new print issue. Uh, and we point out in there that more people will vote this year than in any year 
in the history of the world. And some of this is because of the sheer size of countries involved. I mean, India has 1.4 billion people. It is heading to the polls. And India has uh, a five-year election cycle. America has a four-year election cycle, but they're meeting uh, in 2024 in some sort of planetary alignment. And you have five of the, the six biggest democracies in the world. So that includes Indonesia, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Um, I want to talk about this more broadly, but let me just pick on one country as an excuse to to dive into what's going to happen there. Um, Russia is going to have elections and, and Vladimir Putin says he will contest them because he can. Um, and I want to use that as an excuse to just quickly talk about how you see uh, the Russia-Ukraine war playing out in 2024 and how Putin might be gaming things out as he looks ahead to the West's appetite to keep supporting Ukraine, which of course will also be um, on the ballot in elections uh, across Europe and of course in the US. Right, that's a great question. I mean, I think we uh, don't have a lot of uncertainty about the likely outcome of the Russian elections. Um, and I don't think he needs to game uh, his war effort very much around making sure that he has a lot of support. You may see some uh, evidence of dissidents, but you're not going to see much that's politically uh, consequential. The other sort of general point I'd make is that, you know, the last 10 or 20 years, if not previously, tells you that democratic elections, when they are free and fair, um, often yield some surprising results. And if you look at all the different places you listed, uh, it won't surprise me at all if one or two of them produce outcomes that we don't quite anticipate or that lead to policy changes we haven't uh, we haven't fully anticipated. What I'm struck by is that there's actually another event happening in the midst of all of this, um, and that's the 75th anniversary of NATO. Mm. Right? And this is going to be held in Washington, D.C., and it's going to be quite an odd event. Because, of course, you'll see all of the speeches and commentary talking about the remarkable success of the greatest alliance in the history of the planet, uh, etc. And this is going to be happening, though, with, uh, with two shadows being cast over. One is that, in my view, the war in Ukraine will not be going well, and this will be seen as a failure of the alliance. If Russia continues to do well, continues to advance on the battlefield, that's going to look very bad, particularly given the position that NATO countries have taken on that conflict. And the second dark cloud that's going to be uh, shadowing the 75th anniversary is the possible re-election of Donald Trump, um, who was not an enthusiast, cast a considerable doubt about NATO's future, has no love lost for it or the European Union, and I wouldn't rule out his going after American membership in NATO were he to be reelected. And everyone attending that celebration is going to be aware that one of the elections about to happen is an American election that might actually have a real impact. And of course, if the war in Ukraine is going badly, that helps Trump or whoever is running against Biden and makes it more likely that we're facing more of an existential crisis for the alliance uh, down the road. So I'm going to park uh, uh, the Trump-Biden election, if it is indeed a Trump-Biden election, uh, and come back to that in a bit. But, you know, the year will begin with a bang because we've got elections in Taiwan uh, in the middle of January. And this one's really important because if the incumbent pro-independence party is reelected, that could spark off a whole range of tensions on the Taiwan Strait. 
um, and uh, reverse some of the recent kind of bonhomie between the United States and China. I think that's right. Uh, so the outcome there is going to be very important. Uh, the incumbent candidate of the ruling Democratic People's Party has been uh, outspoken on the subject of independence in the past. He has been moderating his statements going forward. So I think there's been an attempt to sort of step back from uh, you know, pushing the, the prospect of independence. And I believe the message he has gotten consistently from the United States and from others is that even if uh, he's successful in the election, as appears most likely, this is the one red line issue that might force China to take actions that would be, you know, uh, tremendously destabilizing in the region. I don't think that's going to happen. I think a year from now, the status quo will still be prevailing there. But it's certainly an election we want to watch and an, and an aftermath we want to pay very close attention to. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Another big election coming up uh, in the first half of the year is India. Um, that's going to be in May, and Indian elections usually last for four or five weeks because it's so big and it needs to be staggered. Uh, and a lot of polls suggest that Prime Minister Narendra Modi is a shoe-in um, for yet another term. There were recently uh, a spate of state elections in India um, that really serve as a bellwether for public sentiment about Modi. And, you know, by and large, his ruling party, Ajanta Party, did quite well. Um, so how do you see that playing out? And India is an interesting one in a global sense, because India's foreign policy um, has been uh, much more muscular over the last few years. They've seemingly abandoned uh, non-alignment, seem much more likely to look out for their strategic interests instead of focusing on values. Um, how do you see that developing over the course of 2024? So first of all, I think Prime Minister Modi is going to be overwhelmingly reelected, and that will, of course, reiterate or reinforce all of the policy positions and stances he's taken at home and abroad. Why not continue what seems to be working? Um, and I think it also shows you the sort of emerging character of an increasingly multipolar world, where as India becomes more powerful, it adopts a more independent stance in a variety of ways. So yes, it wants to be close to the United States for balancing China but it also has a close relationship with Russia because that gets it cheap energy and helps the Indian economy. And the fact that there's a tension between those two goals, um, wanting to be close to the United States for strategic reasons related to Asia and wanting to be close to Russia for its own reasons, is just a sign of how politics works when you have a number of different competing powers. This, of course, then is something the United States has to get used to where we're not comfortable with some of the illiberal tendencies within the Modi uh, government, the tendency to step on certain democratic norms, uh, emphasizing you know, Hindu nationalism over minority rights. That makes Americans uncomfortable in a variety of ways. Um, but on the other hand, we see India as a very important potential partner 
uh, in the Quad in Asia as part of the larger competition with China. Welcome to great power politics. You can't get everything you want. Stephen, and just to take a break from elections for a moment, there's another big uh, development that will emerge in January, and that's that um, we've got six new countries joining uh, the BRICS uh, group of emerging economies. Um, so BRICS Plus will will finally emerge as a thing, and Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa will end up being joined by Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. How do you think that's going to play out? But also, more broadly, what does this mean um, for you in terms of how geopolitics and multilateralism and great power politics plays out um, in the year ahead? Well, my first instinct is to sort of downplay uh, these developments, that when you have what are still, uh, in most cases, relatively uh, small, relatively weak countries, um, you know, some of them uh, wealthy, but not particularly populous or particularly powerful, when you get them all joining together into large groupings, that still doesn't necessarily mean very much because their combined capabilities are still dwarfed by those of more powerful countries. And of course, they're not as unified on lots of issues. So if you go back, you know, 30, 40 years to the non-aligned movement or the group of 77, um, I don't think they had a decisive influence on world politics because they simply didn't have the capabilities uh, to do so. Now, that's my first instinct. But and I step back from that and I start asking myself, well, some of those countries, India, as we've uh, talked about, um, you know, are beginning to have greater weight and have to be taken into account if you're trying to do any kind of multilateral trade agreement. The interests of these countries really uh, are important. And so some of the members of these groupings are starting to have a bit more clout. And then finally, they do become a forum for presenting alternative ideas, right? And with a certain degree of collective legitimacy. And a you know, good realist like me doesn't place too much weight on ideas, but it's not that they have no impact whatsoever. And particularly at a moment where China is trying to propose a certain set of ideas on a future world order. The United States is trying to defend a sort of liberal set of principles behind a world order and a set of legacy institutions. If you have a combined grouping with lots of the global South involved in it that gets to weigh in and vote on which of these ideas it thinks are most significant, that can have some impact uh, over time. So the fact that more countries are beginning to join, I think is significant, if not transformative. Uh, I don't think, um, you know, the, the world will suddenly look dramatically different in February because of what's gonna happen in January, but it is a sign of a trend that we ought to be mindful of. And it probably is one that should worry Americans a little bit insofar as many of these countries are at least skeptical about viewing the U.S. view of the world as the default and, you know, that our ideas should be just sort of automatically accepted by others. That's something we, mm. we have to get uh, used to the fact that others have a different view. Mm. Indonesia is another very big election in the spring. Uh, the incumbent is not running. He's not eligible. Um, any thoughts on uh, the broader ramifications of how the world should think about this big a Muslim-majority country in Southeast Asia uh, that has more than 200 million people but rarely gets uh, anywhere near as much attention in the global press? 
Well, it's you know, so we began this conversation about talking about things that were underweighted, or uh, and I don't know nearly enough about Indonesia to have a strong view one way or the other. But for precisely the reason you just named, um, we should be thinking more carefully about what Indonesia's trajectory is going to be, precisely because of its size and its economic growth, and it's going to become a more consequential player over time. And if the United States and others are really focused on the balance of power in Asia and whether the United States or China is going to have predominant influence in that part of the world, how Indonesia decides to orient itself, how it decides to align could be really quite significant. So if you see Indonesia beginning to move even more powerfully towards a Western or a U.S. orientation, that's quite consequential. On the other hand, if Indonesia decided it wanted to hedge, if Indonesia decided it even wanted to shift towards a somewhat more sympathetic to China position, that's going to be noticed by others in the region. That's going to be quite consequential too. So um, I wish I knew more about uh, you know Indonesia's likely trajectory, but it's I think you know an understudied problem, and I'm evidence of that uh, that probably deserves more attention than it's gotten so far. Well, FP will will make sure it covers it uh, properly in 2024. You know, and this is also part of a, a broader pet peeve of mine that, you know, Indonesia has more Muslims than any other country in the world, more than 200 million, uh, as does India, more than 200 million. Um, and then you've got Bangladesh and Pakistan, which each have more than 150 million Muslims. Um, and this is all, you know, a big group of people that often gets left out of discussions uh, about uh, how Muslims are are perceiving what's going on in the Middle East, um, where for many commentators in the West, um, it is just the Arab world, uh, when in fact, if you add up all the countries of the Arab world, um, they have fewer Muslims uh, than South Asia does, for example. But zooming out a little bit more, once again, there are some big trends uh, to imagine that could play out in elections in 2024. And, you know, I'm quite worried about the role of myths and disinformation and how that could get kind of supercharged by AI. Um, I'm worried about nationalism. I'm worried about populism. Um, when you think about all of the elections um, coming up in 2024, the grand sweep of them, what worries you the most? Um, as an American, what worries me the most is the outcome of the election in November 2024. I don't, um, I don't think that uh, we're going to see technology exerting a profound effect on the next cycle of elections. Uh, the ability of uh, social media and AI to affect those things, I think, is still pretty limited. Um, and it's hard to find uh, examples where, say, social media campaigns run by foreign governments or uh, have had, I think, a, a really big impact on uh, electoral outcomes. Uh, so a few things. I'm worried about the degree of sort of uncompromising polarization still uh, here in the United States and in some other places as well, um, to the point that it makes it sort of impossible for collectivities, for nations as a whole to, uh, you know, agree on the same set of facts or what they actually mean. One place you see it here is in the United States. Uh, a trend of 2023 that we all ought to be happy about is that inflation seems to have actually been tamed in the United States. And the American economy is by almost all measures doing remarkably well. And yet most Americans don't think that's the case. 
for one reason or another. Quite puzzling, I think, uh, of great concern for obvious reasons uh, for the Biden administration. And some of that may reflect the fact that people are, you know, getting their information only from sources that they already agree with. So if you happen to watch, you know, a, a more right wing oriented news station, they're not going to tell you very much good news about the economy. And therefore, even if the news is good, you don't know about it. Uh, that, I think, worries me in almost all of these contexts is the tendency for opinion now to be concentrated and siloed to the point that we all know what we believe. What we forget is what we believe probably isn't the full story because we're never hearing from alternative perspectives. Mm. Well, as you can tell, I was trying to hold us um, from discussing the the U.S. election right to the end, um, but you brought us there. So So let's do it. Um, it looks like, you know, the two front runners right now, President Biden and former President Donald Trump, it looks like that is the likeliest um, formulation for what November 2024 is going to look like. A lot of people are going to analyze this to death in terms of the domestic policies and how American voters are thinking about it. But let me ask you, you know, in a foreign policy sense, what are the stakes what does it look like for the world if we have Biden 2.0 or the world has Trump 2.0? So let me start with Biden uh, 2.0. Uh, Biden 2.0 will be mostly continuity. They are going to stick with uh, the basic framework they have uh, followed from the very beginning. Um, and you're not going to see dramatic changes, right? It is going to be a and they, by the way, they're going to argue for that in domestic and uh, foreign policy as well. The one place I'll go out on a limb uh, and say that I think if Biden is reelected, uh, you will see the United States then at that point begin moving much more directly to trying to negotiate a settlement to the war in Ukraine. I think they are not going to want to admit that Ukraine can't win before the election, but afterwards, I think they're going to be interested in cutting a deal. I think if Trump is elected, of course, the movement in that direction to distance ourselves from Ukraine and, and basically force them to cut whatever deal they can will be almost immediate. But I think something similar is likely to happen uh, with respect to Biden. In Asia, the two are going to be the same. Uh, Trump was very worried about China uh, and the Biden administration has continued and, if anything, doubled down on some of Trump's policies uh, towards China in a more targeted way. Um, and Biden, of course, has been very effective in trying to organize alliances in Asia. Trump would not dismantle those alliances. He'll just be a more difficult person for them all to deal with because he was in the first term. He likes to bully other countries. He's not all that interested in constructing multilateral arrangements. He kind of likes to do divide and conquer. So it's going to be a bumpier ride in Asia, but America's major commitments are going to be preserved because, of course, they're all about China. Europe is the set of countries that ought to be really worried. Uh, you know, as I said before, he has no love lost for the European Union. He once declared it was an enemy. He thinks NATO may be obsolete uh, as well. So if I were the Europeans, I would start hedging a lot against the possibility uh, of a Trump presidency. I guess what you're hitting on also is the, you know, the future of the so-called liberal international order of multilateral alliances. And you say that Europeans are worried, but, you know, anyone who is uh, a climate negotiator, 
um, anyone who works in uh, multilateral diplomacy um, is also going to be very, very worried about a Trump, uh, the return of Trump, but also the return of a Trump who is more emboldened um, about uh, doubling down on, you know, many of the things he did in his first presidency. That That's right. So, you know, he'd already said that the first thing they're going to do on day one is start drilling, right, which is an indication of where they're at. And the big difference here is that 2016 was a surprise, including a surprise for the Trump campaign team. They weren't sure they were going to win. They had no transition team set up. They had no cadre of people ready to put into key positions. And one of the reasons you had such a shambolic Trump term was the fact that they were constantly firing people, constantly improvising, and they didn't have a team of loyalists. Well, they had four years of being of his being president. They've had four years under Biden to now prepare that team, prepare that Rolodex of people. So you're going to see a more unified team. The good news, if that's what you want to call it, is that I think the focus in the first year is going to be mostly on domestic politics. And I think many of the possibilities there are really horrifying. They're not going to be focusing on foreign policy. But once that team is in place, once they think they've got the blob or the bureaucracy under some control, then I would can imagine them making big changes in foreign policy issues, not just alliances, but the other things you mentioned uh, in all sorts of ways that would be, I think, quite damaging. One of our subscribers, uh, Glenn Carlton, has written in to say that if Trump is elected, are there any guardrails that can be relied on um, for the for other countries, for the global order? They've had a, a while to prepare for the potential return of Trump. What guardrails exist? Well, one guardrail, of course, is that other countries can join forces to try and oppose or limit what the United States does. Um, and then the argument then comes back to the United States of, you know, do you really want to face the combined opposition of all the countries in Europe to what you're proposing to do? Uh, do you want to drive other countries closer together in ways that would undermine what you're trying to accomplish, uh, et cetera, even things you're trying to accomplish at home. You know, the United States is very powerful, but it is not supreme. You do need some cooperation from, from the rest of the world. The other guardrails are the ones, of course, that exist within the U.S. system of government. And those guardrails actually put real limits on what Trump was able to do in the first term, right? The establishment put real constraints on some of the things he accomplished. And they learned that he had a short attention span. So if you just ignored what he told you to do, he would forget about it and you could continue with business as usual. My concern is that some of that will be impossible in the second term because they've learned uh, from the experience of the first term and they're going to try to get much greater control over the bureaucracy. Whether or not the blob is able to effectively push back as they did in the first term uh, remains to be seen, but I think it's going to be harder. Mm. What's your sense of the trajectory of U.S.-China relations in 2024? Because we've seen uh, over the last few weeks with the summit in San Francisco, APEC, that uh, you know high-level diplomatic ties have increased, military-to-military uh, -military communication is back on. There are some positive signs, um, but as we mentioned earlier, Taiwan and its elections in January could be a real test of that. What's your sense of what the rest of the year for this relationship looks like? 
I think both the United States and China have a real interest in not having that relationship deteriorate dramatically over the next year. Uh, the United States has its hands full now uh, dealing with Ukraine, dealing with uh, the Gaza war. The last thing we need is a crisis emerging somewhere in Asia uh, while all these other things are happening. And similarly, the Chinese economy is not doing well. There have been internal disarray within the Chinese government, the full nature of which I don't think we even understand, but it's clearly something that has preoccupied uh, Xi Jinping. The tensions that China has had with other countries have complicated uh, their relations. So they've been trying to make up with other countries in Asia and certainly with Europeans. Uh, both sides have an incentive to keep this competition somewhat muted for the next year or so. So barring some unexpected event like uh, a unilateral declaration of independence by Taiwan or something like that, I think it's gonna be a, a rare zone of uh, I won't say peace, but at least calm over 2024. You know what? That is such a positive note to try and end on that I'm going to take it. Stephen Wald, thank you and so, so much. so uncharacteristic of me. <laughs> uh, and, and of me as well, but I'm going to take it because it's so rare. Um, thanks for sticking your neck out. I know this is a tough uh, assignment to have to try and predict and look ahead at a year, but I think we did it. Okay, good. Nice talking to you as always. Pleasure to have you on. And that was Stephen Walt, an FP columnist and professor at Harvard University. Remember, you can also watch these conversations live if you're a subscriber. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. And you can see who we have coming up next right there on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Lots of exciting conversations in the weeks ahead. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live in video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust, walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. 
To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.